Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome. I'm Ewan Graham. I'm the Executive Director of uh, La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. And it's my pleasure here to welcome you today for our discussion on Unmaking the Himalaya, Geopolitics, Environment and Citizenship. One of the things we're very proud of here at La Trobe University is that uh, uh, we've got not just the largest accumulation of expertise on the Himalayas uh, in Australia, but I think indeed anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, so you're in the right spot if you're interested in that part of the world. Uh, in physical terms, the, the Himalayas is obviously uh, well known for what it is. There's the tectonic crumple zone between the Indian uh, subcontinent and the rest of Asia. It's literally the high point of Asia, uh, but into the bargain it's also the aquifer for much of Asia, serving 40% of the world's population uh, with their water. Um, it's also become a geopolitical, uh, indeed a military flashpoint uh, in recent times with the standoff between China and uh, the uh, armed forces of India uh, that took place at Dokhlam uh, just last year. Uh, and um, overlaying all of these things, the Himalaya is now acquiring, I think, a deserved um, attention that, uh, that it has uh, lacked, being seen rather as a, a borderland relegated um, for geopolitical and, uh, and other reasons. So um, I'm very happy to uh, be able to introduce our four experts today um, with uh, Dr. Gerald Roche, who will be um, playing a chairman chairing role uh, in today's proceedings. Uh, also a special welcome to Associate Professor Sonika Gupta, um, uh, who's uh, come out to, to join us um, from IITM uh, in Chennai. Uh, and um, I'm very happy that the Trobe Asia, Asia has been able to support your, your visit here. Um, it's, it, it, it's great to have you. Uh, and you'll be with us, I think, until early July. That's right, Sonika. Great. And uh, indeed, there's another event that's going on um, related to this. Uh, in uh, in Sydney um, tomorrow, so this the Himalayas is also a movable feast. Um, and then from La Trobe uh, University, we have um, two um, of our uh, really strong uh, emerging scholars, Dr. Alex Davis uh, and Dr. Ruth Gamble, um, to complete the lineup. So you're in good hands. Um, without further ado, I'll um, hand over to Gerald. Okay, thanks everyone for coming along this afternoon. Um, just to begin with, on behalf of the university, on behalf of uh, La Trobe Asia, and uh, personally also, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of this land, a land which is um, unceded land that we're meeting on today. Um, just to briefly introduce the, today's topic, um, I'll give a little bit of background on what I know about rather than what they know about, which is the, the Chinese Himalaya, right? Um, so I've worked for a long time with Tibetan communities inside the People's Republic of China. Um, since leaving China a couple of years ago and since starting at La Trobe and working with these wonderful scholars and uh, meeting Sonika in Kyrgyzstan last year, um, we've been starting to have conversations about the Himalaya as a transnational region that stretches across uh, borders in the heartlands of Asia. And one of the things that's really fascinating about the area is the contradictions that emerge because of those borders and the intensification of state presences in those areas. And these are all things which are really absent within the People's Republic of China because of the absence of borders. 
So you see on the one hand that we have, for example, increasing militarization between India and China, Nepal and Bhutan. But on the other hand, at the same time, you also have increasing tourism to the area. So it's becoming an increasingly friendly and unfriendly place simultaneously. Uh, another one of the contradictions that we see is that we're, uh, we also see increasing infrastructure linking those countries together, the encouragement of uh, goods, ideas, and people across all those borders at the same time as a hardening of all those borders and the prevention of movement between those countries. So there are these really, when you look at the region trends nationally, there's a lot that links it together and a lot that keeps it apart. And I guess that's what we're going to be talking about today. And so the format of the, this afternoon's proceedings is that um, each of the speakers is going to present for between five and 10 minutes. Uh, that should get us to somewhere near the half an hour mark. Then I'm going to grill them with uh, questions for maybe another 20 to 30 minutes, and then we'll open up for questions for about 30 minutes at the end uh, then. So um, hold on to your questions until then. And we're going to start with Alex, I believe. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gerald. So to get started, I'm just going to introduce the geopolitics of the Himalaya and what I think is the, the way that these Himalayan geopolitics have generally been talked about both by state actors, by think tanks and by international relations scholarship. And then I'll offer a bit of a, a critique of that as well. So the 2,400 kilometres of the Himalayan range marks several state borders. It begins in the disputed India-Pakistan border in Kashmir curls southeast through the disputed India-China border, the undisputed China-Nepal border, the ch disputed China-Bhutan border, and finally the eastern section of the China-India border dispute, which is where Ruth and I took this picture um, a couple of months ago. This is obviously taken from India but we were on the road to a place called Tawang, which is a small city on the Tibetan Plateau, which is, which is in India, but claimed by China. It's from a, it's from a war memorial to the 1962 India-China border war. And the soldiers stationed there told us that these mountains in the background are actually in China, in the, in the Tibetan Autonomous Region. And you can also see in the bottom corner here, some landslides which have occurred from infrastructure projects on the, on the mountains. So, of course, India and Pakistan have fought three wars over Kashmir, Aksai Chin, a large high-altitude desert between Ladakh in India, the TAR in China, and Xinjiang in China is administered by China and claimed by India. In the east, Arunachal Pradesh is administered by India and claimed by China, appearing on Chinese maps as southern Tibet. Now, since the contemporary Indian and Chinese states took their form in the in the 1940s, they've struggled to solidify control over the Himalaya, partly driven by the fact that they can't agree on where India and China begin and end. Uh, this cooperation was shattered, their cooperation was shattered by a 1962 border war, which this memorialises. And since then, China, India and Pakistan have each become nuclear armed states partly because of their mutual competition with, with one another. And what this has enabled is this sort of seemingly permanent state of persistent low-level tensions, but never the outbreak of a sort of full-scale war that, uh, that international relations scholars tend to be interested in. But this friction has led to the militarisation of the region, but also 
its competitive its competitive development, which uh, which Ruth and Sonico will touch on later. Hundreds of thousands of troops are now stationed along the mountains, and Himalayan states are engaged in these competitive development projects. The Himalaya is a region where we see the intersection of this militarization, the opening up of the region through infrastructure projects to the global economy. Uh, we see post-colonial states fighting one another over what are old colonial borders. We also see cultural transformation, which is which is linked in with all of this environment, all of these environmental issues and geopolitical issues. And some of this is also fueled by growing nationalism, which I think we can see in both India and China. And this is all taking place in a region where the climate is warming at twice global averages and where resultant landslides and floodings have been killing as many soldiers as the India-China and India-Pakistan military conflicts have been. And what's really important and what the purpose of today's event is, is that it isn't being talked about in those terms nearly enough, that there's an interlinking here between environment, geopolitics and citizenship and culture. So, what does the Himalaya look like to international politics and people who study it? Well, the framing that we generally see is the one that I just gave. It's the border conflicts, it's the effect of nuclear weapons, and how the Indian, Chinese and Pakistani states feel about, feel about one another. And that means that there's not that much political analysis being done, either within the academic field of international relations, or emerging from think tanks which have proliferated around the world over the last 20 years or so, or from states themselves. I think there are broadly two schools of thought on the Himalaya in IR. Um, and one is quite clearly dominant, and it's that states and security paradigm. And that tends to ask one question in particular. Will India and China and Pakistan go to war over these border conflicts in the mountains? And I don't want to, I don't want to minimise that. I think that's absolutely central to, to what we're seeing. But I also think that it's, it's insufficient um, because it doesn't allow us to understand the experiences of international politics that local peoples in the Himalaya have or it doesn't enable us to understand the effects of the environmental effects of militarizing the Himalayan watershed, which Ruth will talk about shortly. So within this paradigm, we tend to focus on the strategic elites of capital cities like Delhi, Beijing and Islamabad. We talk about Nepal and Bhutan as buffer states. We talk about military tension and strategy over Kashmir and Arunachal Pradesh. We talk about the effect of nuclear weapons and we ask whether or not India and China will fight. And I can understand why this question is so gripping to people and why it seems to take so much of the, so much of the attention. If India and China were to go to war, it would be catastrophic. And if India and China were to get along, it would have a genuinely transformative effect on, on international affairs. But I, I don't want to minimise that, but at the same time, we can't let that obscure everything else. So within this framework and within this map, which I think is fairly uh, representative of, what we, of the kind of analysis that we've been doing, there's no sense of the sort of the geo in, in geopolitics, if you like. The map is flat. We have the capital cities marked, but we don't have any sense of what the... There's no mapping of the local peoples, their languages and their cultures. So we're, by only looking at the region in this way, we lose sight of, of the sort of the scale of the mountains and we ignore the diverse peoples that inhabit them. And that is uh, the sort of geopolitical problem that we face. Um, 
there is another school of thought which tends to focus on the civilizational overlap between India and China, and which argues that looks for new ways for India and China to get along. Um, and I find this um, to be an important, uh, an important element of this story, but at the same time, it, it tends not to emphasize enough the, the opinions of the local peoples. Um, and it's looking for new ways for cooperation, which I find to be admirable, but it, it minimizes the experience of state making, of the experience of infrastructure projects that, uh, that is, is felt by, by the peoples who actually inhabit and live in the region. So how did we, how did we get here is the last question that I'm going to cover before wrapping up. Um, and I think this, Ruth will talk about, you know, 60 million years of environmental history after this, but I'm just going to talk briefly <laughs> about a few hundred years of state making um, in the region. And with the rise of the British Empire in India and the, um, and the Qing Dynasty in China, these colonial practices of map making feed into, feed into the environmental issues. So the British Empire, um, British colonial map makers thought that it was a good idea to have quote unquote natural boundaries. So they looked for rivers or mountain ranges as the ideal place to draw a dividing line. And what that means is that the scale of the Himalayan environment is actually part of the reason why it became, became the borderland that it is today. And there is a genuine ambiguity within, within the region. It's inhabited by extremely diverse peoples. Most of this, most, a lot of these regions can be thought of as their own kingdoms like Nepal, Bhutan or Sikkim was until 1974, or it can be thought of as part of India, it can be thought of as part of China. And so we have these states arguing over, over colonial borders. There's also a sort of more general pattern of linguistic and culturally di cultural diversity rising with, rising with the territory, rising with the height of mountains. And so we have diverse groups of people inhabiting these mountains. And we had colonial map makers deciding that mountains were the ideal place for borders. And then these ideas of um, the Himalaya as the natural boundary between India and China, then are sort of imbibed and accepted by the Indian and Chinese states. And that leads to the sort of hardening of the borders that we have today and the shutting down of thousands and thousands of years worth of connections across the mountains. Um, so just to wrap up, I think those of us who study international relations or who practice international, who practice international politics really need to rethink the region, not in a way that we need to, we need to understand what these states are doing. We need to understand the, the military, what they're, how the different militaries are seeing one another, but we can't let that obscure or forget what's going on. So we need to center our analysis, not just on the Indian and Chinese states, but also on the environment and on local peoples who live in the region. We really can't afford to place the question of will India and China and Pakistan go to war above everything else, because that's really only one part of the story that's going on here. There's a much broader story, an interlinked story of state making and environmental and cultural transformation and destruction, which Ruth will feed into more. But I'll leave it there and pass over to you. Thank you. Thank you. 
One of the things I like about doing environmental history as opposed to politics is that it makes states look small and people who consider themselves to be very powerful and linked to very powerful links, uh, uh, powerful networks around the world seem a bit irrelevant. So if you look at this area from the perspective of 60 million years, which is how I, as a, we have a running joke, how I usually start talks 60 million years ago, um, there was no China, there was no India, there was no idea of a nuclear war, there was no Xi Jinping and there was no Modi. What a world. Um, anyway, uh, so 60 million years ago, um, this piece here, uh, which used to be part of a landmass called Gondwana, um, the, the forest of the Gonds and was linked to Australia, broke away, slid across the uh, Indian Ocean and smashed into the Eurasian uh, plate. Right? Uh, the two continents, when they were merged together, pressed together and um, pushed up in a collision zone to create the Himalaya. Yeah? They're still pushing. They're still pushing against each other, geologically as well as culturally and sometimes militarily. And uh, it, the, it raises, the, rises, the Himalaya rises at about one centimetre a year. That's when you take into account erosion. So it's probably going up five centimetres and then the rains and the snows are washing away around four centimetres. So I keep, and, uh, it keeps striking me that maybe the Himalaya is, is definitely Asia rising, the only part of Asia that is actually rising. Um, it, there was, the other thing that's really interesting about this region is that... Um, Oh, hang on, just to show you the photos, though, just before I go on, you can see it, right? If you look at the Himalaya from space, you can see the continents. You can see this uh, geological mass smashing into each other and creating these spiky mountains. And that's something that I think, uh, as Alex was showing with the flat map, that gets lost a lot of the time when we are thinking about states. You know, the, the, uh, the power of these recent constructs gives us an idea of the place that's actually very different to the, the ground uh, on which people are standing. So the other thing that was fascinating about this place is that when humans came out of, see, I told you it was 50 million years, when humans came out of Africa, one of the first places they transited through was just underneath the Himalaya. Some of them came down to Australia and others circled around in Southeast Asia. So it's got this really old human history. And what you ended up with is river valleys at the base of the Himalaya collecting all this silt from the mountains and having a spot where you could do a lot of agriculture and have a lot of a concentration of peoples at the base of all of the mountains. And this means this was, these bases of the mountains were fed by a massive water system, the world's biggest water system, uh, hydrological system, that actually uh, ha at le almost half the world's population depends on, between 40 and 45% of the world's population depends on this uh, river system in one way. You keep getting these wildly fluctuating numbers about how many people depend on this river, on this river system because depend is variable. Uh, right, so um, there's, there's some people that just count the people who actually live in the basins and say it's only about a billion. Uh, yeah, um, but then uh, if you take into account the people uh, who depend on the agriculture in these river basins, it, it comes up to about three billion. So the same way that we would say Melbourne depends on the River Murray system and the Murray-Darling system, but we're not actually in the River Murray-Darling system. So you get these different numbers. So up to 3.4 billion people live within this greater watershed. All of Asia's major rivers descend from the Himalaya. And with it, they're not so much a watershed as I keep saying it's like a mud sled or, or, a, or a slime shed. So that they're bringing down all of this fertile soil on which people depend for agriculture. 
Um, and uh, at the moment, there's a lot of ecological things that we'll get to, ecological issues with this region, because this is also, as well as being where most people live and most people depend on it, it's also highly polluted. All of these rivers are being dammed. Um, five of the 11 most polluted rivers in the world are in this. And there's something like 80% of the world's, of the uh, plastic in the world's oceans comes from these rivers, All right? So this is a major center of lots of things in the world. Um, and the environmental history, um, so thinking about how this works, there's an element not just of the geology and the water and the, and coming, and the, water and the uh, mud coming down, but climatic history, which we're all paying a lot more attention to climate now because it's going so weird. Uh, but th this is all, this, this, mountain, this mountain range creates climate as well. So there are all of the monsoons in Asia uh, tend to bounce off the Himalaya and uh, spread uh, water. So you, you get this combination of the snow dropping and the monsoon rains falling on the plains. Uh, and this system has created the water for agriculture and for drinking in this area that has drawn in all the peoples of the world, or half the people of the world. The main cultivations is rice and wheat. And both India and China have traditions of cultivating rice and wheat. And these uh, crops enabled, again, large population growth. They're also linked to the idea if you have large populations growing rice and wheat, it means you end up with big kingdoms. All right, rice and wheat are the food of empires. Yeah? Um, they didn't do so much. They didn't, in India, the major difference between the two massive population centers is India didn't engage in as much irrigation and uh, dam building as China, where it was a, a fundamental aspect of the, of the empires that developed in China. Um, but they both had very similar um, riverine hydrological societies. So that was on the plains, right? But up in the mountains, things are a little bit different. Uh, what you ended up with in the mountains, instead of large empires with large groups of people growing wheat and rice, you ended up with small communities, loads of languages, small kingdoms, uh, eventually small kingdoms, uh, people growing whatever they could. You know, some places it was barley, some places it was millet. Potatoes were a big hit when they were introduced from uh, South America later. So you get this... Um, this, these small sections that, that were uh, of people cut off by mountains and rivers and different communities developed in these different areas. So you got a lot more diversity. There was a lot more plant diversity, there's a lot more language diversity, and there was a, a lot more cultural diversity in the area as well. They all seem to connect together. Um, from this, instead of having these mass empires developed as you saw in China and India, uh, and these uh, histories of, of large empires on the riverine plains, what you ended up with was, first of all, the small, smaller communities, and then some of them all got together and formed smaller kingdoms. And you ended up, uh, by the uh, dawn of the, uh, the uh, um, colonialist era, with a series of different uh, um, kingdoms that used to fight with each other. Um, and amongst each other and uh, control different parts of land. And uh, the, the kind of heavy hitters, and um, I keep thinking of this, the, the British of the mountains, um, is, was the Tibetans, all right? They tended to bully everybody else and um, take their land. And, uh, and, then, and then they would collapse and then it would go back to being individual groups ar ar around the mountains. Uh, so this, the Tibetans were the main rule, but you also had a series of kingdoms and uh, small entities, po polities around the edges. And one of these 
um, is Sikkim, which, I ha which is this photo is taken from. And I don't know what their bee's doing there. Maybe it's just telling you to relax. I don't know, bee. Um, anyway, um, but there's a, you had uh, Kashmir, as, as Alex was talking about, Bhutan, Sikkim, Nepal. And sorry, this one, this photo is from Sikkim because in the 60s, there was a young British backpacker, backpacker named Hope Cook who happened to marry um, the king of uh, Sikkim. And she became like a, um, like a, I don't know, the new ideas of the day were really into her, all the women's magazines. And um, that's one of, I'm not making this up, about 50 photos I found recently in Life and Time magazines of Hope Cook and her exotic husband. Um, uh, so uh, is, there was this idea then that it was, uh, there was access. And the reason I wanted to use this photo is because people often have this idea you know, people talk about Shangri-La or all of these mystical isolated places. They may have been isolated by uh, geography and grown different crops and had different languages, but they weren't sealed off, right? They only looked sealed off from the people on the plains because they weren't used to them, right? But there was so much trade and, in, and, uh, and interactions between the different peoples of the mountains and across the mountains. This is going all the way back. So Hope Cook from New York, um, uh, who, who married this uh, Sikkimese king. They're wearing clothes that have been influenced by China um, and, and there's symbols in there that are linked to uh, both Greece and Persia. There was all of these trade links all across that area for, had been for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, and then <laughs> um, in the 19th century, you started to get, uh, as Alex was saying, this is where my uh, explanation collides with his, um, uh, you had the British come into uh, South Asia. You had the Qing uh, t taking control, uh, in control in China, and the Russians uh, pretending maybe to invade from the north. And this created this competition uh, that's often called the Great Game between these big entities to decide where who owned what. Right? And the problem was that in their heads and on their maps. Uh, you had to have a line, as Alex was saying. This is a mountain, we'll draw a line. But in these areas, there was, there were no, there was no imperial controls. There was all of this uh, broken connections and, and um, what did we decide they were, Gerald? The, uh, the, uh, were the standover merchants. Um, so that they, the, the local people would create a contract with someone thousands of kilometres away and say, okay, um, I'll pay you tax if you protect me if someone else comes. Right, so you had all of these weird connections all across the mountains uh, that were based on personal con uh, on relationships, sometimes across thousands of kilometres that were con were complicated and uh, interconnected and based on um, like so if if one person had married from the one area of the Himalaya to another 200 years ago, they may still have a a, a treaty relationship based on that. There was all these inter interconnected web of uh, political relationships and. Um, when the British decided they wanted a border, they couldn't, there, there really wasn't a border, it was a border land, right? There was no line. Um, so they kept kind of inventing lines um, and they tried to negotiate lines with the, the Chinese uh, and the Tibetans and uh, it, it was really hard to negotiate it because there was no one there. Right? Uh, so they came up with this idea of the McMahon line in uh, uh, 1915, uh, which was, it was supposedly the border between uh, China, um, the Chinese influence in Tibet and India, but the Chinese refused to sign it. Um, and uh, it ended up being a line drawn between Tibet and uh, India, but then the Tibetans said they only signed it 
um, so that the British would leave them alone. Um, so we ended up with this line that at the time no one believed in, no one agreed with, and no one was actually monitoring, right? It was just a kind of, um, here, we'll do this so everyone can go home, yeah? Um, but then, uh, in, uh, uh, in the late 1940s, the new, in post-World War II Asia, um, the Republic of India and the Republic of China uh, were formed within a couple of years of each other and decided that they needed a border. They, the, the Indians um, claimed that the McMahon line, which had been handed down to them by the British, was the natural border. That's the word that Nehru used, the natural border between India and China. And the Chinese said that the Indians' acceptance of the McMahon line was a, a traitorous action in favour of colonialists. Uh, so they couldn't agree on where their border was. And, uh, these, and this led to uh, tensions along the border in 1962. They fought a war over the border. And this is the interesting thing too, when I was talking about this idea that people kept projecting lines up there and having ideas and not actually being there. In the 1962 war, and if you look at where they actually, the Chinese and the, and, the, and the Indians fought, they fought in one valley here, one valley there, and one area just here. That's it. They didn't go anywhere else. It was like three valleys. The whole war was fought over three valleys. So even in the middle of the war, they didn't occupy this space that they were claiming. Right? It, it, it was just mm, carto cartographical aggression. Um, it has only really been since technological, technology has been developed since the 1980s and 1990s that these areas have been occupied. And this occupation since the 1980s and 90s has transformed the area, has transformed the, um, the, the people's lives. And, and that it's combined with is, uh, climate change is, is having a devastating effect on the environment. Um, you end up with, a, in, in militarised zones, you have a lot more uh, male presence than women. So you end up with all these weird signs, like uh, from the Border Road Organisation, um, whose uh, acronym is BRO, um, with signs saying, um, be good on my curves and all this stuff. And then it's this, uh, this kind of very masculine space. Uh, the uh, indigenous peoples and, of the area and the local communities, all these ones that I was talking about are being pushed aside. Uh, it's militarised. And then there's also, as Alex said, a lot of uh, tourism coming into, or sorry, Gerald said, a lot of tourism coming into the area from the big countries of India and China. Um, uh, and along with this, and if you want to know more about this, you should ask Gerald. Um, there's a, the state languages of India and China are also being pushed into the region. Uh, if you go into Arunachal Pradesh, there's a, um, at least 50 major language groups and they're all trying to communicate in really bad Hindi. Um, uh, some of the language groups on the Chinese side, like, seriously bad Hindi, they made mine look good. Um, and, and, and on the other side of the mountains, uh, the, uh, the, the, there's a, a tendency to awards both Chinese and the, um, in reaction to that, a, a re-emergence of Tibetan as a resistance language. So the, the, the troops are coming in, the states are coming in, the languages are being transformed as well as the environment. Yeah, I just said this. All right. Um, uh, so, so you're ending up with this transformation of these things being sucked into the states, losing the diversity and uh, leaving people uh, in a kind of 
what was their home has become a no man's land, is being defined internationally, is being uh, reimagined as a no man's land between two large nation states. And uh, that leads neatly into Sonica's talk. Uh, I'm very happy to be here and thank you La Trobesha so much for making this happen. Thank you. Alex, Ruth, James, all of you for making this so much fun. And uh, I hope uh, this continues to be the kind of uh, synergy that we have uh, tried to build. I hope it, we've been able to convey it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the lens and focus it really, really close. Okay. Um, Alex spoke about flat maps and he spoke about how that's a problematic concept and roots 60 million years of environmental history. So, but what does it mean for people? How does it affect people? And I'm going to talk about one specific aspect of this, which is citizenship. And I'm going to talk only and only about India. Uh, citizenship is a contested con um, concept on the other side of the India-China border, in China as well. But there the conflict is more about the practice of formal versus substantive citizenship. In the Indian side, it has very specific um, uh, connections with environment, with uh, language, with um, who is indigenous, who's not, and a very large uh, electoral mobilization that we've been through very recently has affected all of that in ways that we have to look at it much more closely than just states um, or just even large environmental systems and we have to look at how all of this happens. And something I'm going to sp speak a little bit more about is lines that Ruth spoke about. Okay, so let's get started. So uh, some of you might have heard um, that there is a process going on in India right now that is to decide in one state in India, in the Himalayan part of India, in the Northeast, who is a citizen and who is not. That state is Assam and the Exercise is called the National Register of Citizens, right? And today, it's, it's really, I don't know, coincidental, tragic. Today, the final list of who is a citizen and who is not is going to come out. So I'm going to take you through that process. And we must keep in mind, this, all of this is happening in the backdrop of, of everything Ruth and Alex spoke about. This is an environmentally highly sensitive region. This is a region which is in a competition with uh, its neighboring regions to build as much infrastructure as possible. And all of that collates into the kind of tensions people have with each other within the region. So this is a news report from earlier this month. This person you see here, his name is Sanaullah. He, was a, he is a veteran of the Kargil War between India and Pakistan. His name was not included in the NRC. National Register for Citizenship, and it's not uh, it's not uh, it's not surprising that his name was not included because nearly four million people were left out of that NRC, right? So this um, um, came to the media's attention because he happens to be a war veteran, and how can a war veteran not be a citizen, right? But this is not the only case. There are four million cases, and there are likely to be many more than four million after today. So the conversation that set off was, who is, this, who is a citizen of India? 
How do you prove you're a citizen of India? What does the state require you to do to prove that you're a citizen of India? And this is a very, very long debate. It has a very long history, uh, not as long as what Ruth was talking about, <laughs> but it goes back to the colonial times, right? The NRC, I will talk about the colonial times. Before that, let me put the NRC in a little bit of a context, because it's a highly complex exercise, and I'm going to drill down to the very basics, right? It was first actually started in 1951, very soon after independence, where Assam as a highly fertile valley had um, British plantations. And in these plantations, these uh, commercial plantations that the British owned and had set up there, there were people who came from outside Assam to work there. Along with that, there were many tradespeople who had migrated to Assam. And this migration did not happen only under the British. This, this predates, but I'm going to talk about it, how the British dealt with it. Right? So once the British left, there was this entire legacy of people who had lived in, in Assam for a very long time. Right? But they were not Assamese. They were not indigenous Assamese. And it is very difficult to define today, therefore, who is indigenous, who is not. And the other thing which I find myself doing as I'm looking through this work is that it's very difficult to make assumptions like refugees versus the others. Because refugees get the benefit of doubt, of saying, we are on the wrong side. We, we get short end of the stick. right? Or indigenous people struggling for their land. You cannot possibly look at it as anything but um, sympathy, right? The history of this region is something that allows, uh, that forces you to rethink some of these things, right? So it started in 1951 because at that point in time itself, the issue was um, raised by uh, indigenous mobilization, saying these people, all, all these people who live here, they are, not, they are not Assamese. Why do they live here? Despite the fact that India does not have that kind of in its law, it does not have that kind of uh, restrictions on people living in different parts of the country. It can live anywhere, right? But that process was stalled till 2013, and it is very closely linked with electoral mobilization. Every government that has made any change in the law has done it because they have tried to uh, secure more and more vote banks in the region, right? In 2013, the Supreme Court mandated that the NRC should be actually now put into place. Now, before everybody jumps onto the Modi thing and say this is, you know, post-Modi, this is no, this this predates the Modi government, right? And the problem also predates the Modi government. Though we will see how it has changed under the Modi government, right? Now, the, the, this outcome, like I said, is this was mandated by the Supreme Court, taking cognizance of the fact that Assam has a long-standing demand for identifying who are the foreigners, right? And uh, so once the process started, what the people were required to do was to, uh, was to actually provide proof of legacy in Assam. Now what is legacy in these terms? This is a highly materialized concept of bureaucratic paper. If you can produce a piece of paper that says that your parents lived here, or their parents lived here, or paid taxes here, or owned land here, or uh, had visited the place uh, sufficient enough times. But these are also areas we are talking about which are very prone to flooding. These are areas where people largely were poor earlier. They were not formally educated. So a lot of times, there were, they were no records. The administrations had no records. 
but they expect people to produce these records, right? And <coughs> so the process that was mandated by the Supreme Court in 2013 actually started last year. And in last year, they issued the first list of who is a citizen and who is not a citizen. And there were 4 million people who were considered to be not citizens. In this list of 4 million people, there were also uh, uh, 2.4 lakh, I don't know how to convert this lakh and million. I tried very valiantly for that first one. There's 2.4 lakh people who were considered D voters. D voters means doubtful voters, that they have got their voting rights through dubious means. Right? Now, the, the thing to pay attention to is people can't just get voting rights. The state has to actually facilitate the process. So the state has given you the right to vote. It has given you a voting card. But it is your responsibility as a doubtful voter now to prove that you're not one. It's not the state's responsibility. It's your responsibility. Right? And then, uh, like I said, the final list of illegal immigrants will be published today. In the meantime, what's happening? People who are recognized, uh, whether temporarily or otherwise, as illegal uh, foreigners in the region, they are in detention centers. Now, you know, detention centers is something that we don't, we don't really associate very well with democracies, though it happens everywhere. I mean, yeah, it happens everywhere, right? And here, state jails are actually doubling up as detention centers. And jails in India are not a picnic. They're not a picnic anywhere, but in India, they're not a picnic at all. So, but it also gives you an insight into how the state deals with people who are not able to prove their ties to the land. Because of whatever reason, the reason is not in consideration. The only fact in consideration is you have not proved it. So um, they've both spoken about this, so I won't spend much time on this. The one thing I will talk about is that this is a heavily militarized region, right? But the relationship with the military is not the same throughout. For example, in Arunachal and Ladakh, people are, they have a kind of a symbiotic relationship. But in the other parts of the Northeast, the relationship with the military is highly troubled. In fact, Many parts of the Northeast have been under what is called the Armed Forces Special Protection Act, right? Which is basically a suspension of all civil liberties. And therefore, the process of identifying who is a citizen, who is not a citizen, is happening in an environment where already the relationship with the state is very troubled. So it is not an exercise in which you can, uh, you can have expectations of fairness. It's not an uh, exercise which is not taking into consideration the fact that the state already considers many people in this region as problematic, as people who don't really belong or should not. Okay, So this is the chessboard internally within India. All eight states except Sikkim, they border Assam. So there is migration into Assam from everywhere. And people transit through from Assam to go to anywhere in the region, right? And because of this, there is a lot of uh, uh, there is a lot of uh, mixing of uh, people who claim to be indigenous to Assam, but might not have the tribal ind indigenous identities. And th these people have lived since the 1800s in Assam, right? 
and therefore assam was always uh, it was always a difficult uh, situation even when the republic of india came into existence in 47 and over time it became more and more um, uh, proactive in pushing for the for saying we don't want the foreigners here and it became also fairly militant and it has renegotiated citizenship laws within the union of india right we'll see how before that how did the british manage this and what did the british contribute to this current mess right <laughs> so the british had very the one thing about them was they they had very clear ideas okay so the clear ideas allowed you to make very clear moral judgments and these moral judgments were not disturbed by the fact that there were contestations from below and one of the things that was an outcome of that was this 1873 bengal eastern frontier regulation that established what is what is known as the inner line which can exists even today right the inner line in um, many parts of the northeast but what the uh, what this um, this boundary making practice actually did was it was to prevent people who lived up in the hills to come down to the areas which the british were actually occupying for plantations right but it was and it really surprised me when i was reading the literature on this that how much of uh, the british logic is reproduced in current academic writing where people continue to talk about the fact that this was done for the betterment of the tribes to to keep their culture intact basically what the british did was that if you are a british subject you have the security of the state till this line beyond that we will we will not be responsible for your security right but it has got an uh, journalistic writing has just not caught up at all they still talk about it in the same way right and then we have the 1854 forest rights policy which basically did not look at uh, rights over land as indigenous rights and it will maybe not surprise you to know that this is still the same in india and uh, then the land acquisition act it has been amended in india in the 2003 but pretty much remains the same 19 one uh, consensus which identified tribes on the basis of religion profession and geographic location now here the british they had a bit of a conundrum they didn't know how to classify the tribes so the only thing they knew what to do was to look at indians and say ye hindu hai ye musliman hai is this a, is he a muslim is he a hindu oh these guys are neither hindus nor muslims so they all became tribes right but that's not what tribes are and then the other uh, classification was these people live up in the hills they are hill tribes these people live in the plains they are plains people but then they they had some sophistication to this later on and there were hill tribes and there were plains tribes but it was basically a fairly a coercive kind of an imposition on what was essentially a region with um a lot of uh, mobility not very frequent but a lot of continued mobility right and then in 1919 the government of india the british government of india created wholly and partially excluded areas these wholly and partially excluded areas were basically areas where they said you people can govern yourself it was too dangerous it wasn't profitable it was too tough these these were too remote areas and in many of these areas tribals were give i mean tribal rights were not recognized but administrative 
uh, facilitation was made. This also continues. Out of all this came the 1913 Schedule of Tribes, which also continues. Right? So this was the post-colonial spatial order. This is how all the states were created. Not all created at the same time. Not all uh, created with the, through the same process. And therefore, their history of integration with the Union of India is sufficiently disparate to deserve looking at each one of them separately rather than saying the northeastern region. <coughs> which were the colonial practices which were replicated? One was the Hills Plains, uh, which is what Scott calls, it's a very leaky vessel. Right? You, can't, you can't look at it as that. Because if you do, you deny the fact that there has been um, the kind of interaction between what is called, the, and also, where does the plane end and where does the hill begin? Right? Or it, it, it boxes in the kind of um, mobility, the kind of complexity, and the kind of uh, sometimes contestation and sometimes living harmoniously into very administratively desiccated practices, right? Then the scheduled tribes. Now, there are two main narratives uh, that relate to tribes. One is identity-based isolation. Oh, you know, they should all be left in isolation. They have to preserve their culture. And the other is integration, development-based integration, which is currently in India the dominant narrative. And you have fairly self-aware politicians stand up in public events and say, we will integrate these people into the Indian mainstream. And it is fa fairly well accepted that, yes, this is the way to go. But there is a lot of contestation from below. And Assam is a prime example of that. right? And then there is the inner line permit. Today, the inner line permit, which came out of the 1873 Bengal Eastern Frontier Act, it is there in Arunachal, Nagaland, and Mizoram. But the interesting part is this colonial line, which was imposed by the British, all the states in the Northeast today are asking for it to be imposed on each of them. Because they don't want people from other regions to travel, to be able to buy land, or to settle down in these regions. So these are practices which it is very easy to um, critique as colonial practices, which are now being appropriated in defense of uh, indigeneity. So I'll skip over this. Now, citizenship is not something which is frozen in time. It changes as definitions and discourses of state making change. And this is what Hoffman says, that it is opposed, as opposed to a static concept like, say, patriarchy or the state. These are momentum concepts which have infinitely progressive and egal and which ha which are infinitely progressive and egalitarian and have no stopping point and therefore cannot be realized so you have to you have to keep this in mind when you say why couldn't all of this have been settled how do you settle it because you don't settle it you negotiate renegotiate and you hope that every negotiation is going to be more inclusive but in this case we have not uh, we've not seen um, arguments for inclusion uh, dominate the discourse as much as arguments for exclusion, right? So in India, I think I'll skip over this. Okay, maybe just briefly. In India, um, you can see two very clear binary processes when it comes to citizenship. One is moments of encompassment. This is not my coinage. This is Anupama Roy's coinage and moments of closure. Right? Uh, when India became independent at that point in time, it had 
a very urgent and a very huge problem of refugees of partition. At that point in time, citizenship laws allowed for people to come in to be citizens, right? So that was an encompassing kind of a moment, right? Um, following that, in 1983, there was a, uh, keeping the specific problem of Assam in mind, there was an illegal migrants determination tribal, IMDT, that was set up to say that people who have been there for a long time, uh, especially till I think it was 1971, they will be considered to be Assamese, right? But this was done with a lot of um, opposition from Assamese parties, political parties, right? And the IMDT was also, um, it was struck down in 2003, I think, by the, 2016, 2005, sorry, by the Supreme Court saying that this is an illegal exercise. You cannot possibly pick and choose areas of India where you decide who's a citizen or not. Citizenship laws have to apply uniformly throughout the country. They cannot be specific to areas, right? And then we have suddenly into the, into the NRC debate, you have a new amendment to the citizenship bill, which the BJP introduced and said, refugees from countries like Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Pakistan will be given citizenship status in India if they are Hindus, Christians, Jains, Buddhists, or Parsis. So who was left out? Muslims, right? Again, this had a massive backlash in Assam. In fact, the AGP, the Assam uh, Gan Parishad, which is the main political party that was behind the Assam agitation, which was in partnership with the BJP, withdrew its support from the BJP, saying that you are undoing years of political work that we have put into building what is the, called the Assam Accord, which was signed in 83. And how can you say that everybody who's a Hindu belongs to India? Not only will it, it will completely decimate the basis of uh, indigenous argument, it will also encourage more um, migration from Bangladeshi Hindus into Assam. So you cannot take a view of this that indigeneity is always premised on uh, claiming rights that were lost long back. It also claims rights way into the future, right? And in, in negotiating this, certain exclusions are made, are being made, and politically we have to accommodate that in the analysis that we do, right? And uh, so what is, what is happening in the other states? This is spilling over into other states now. The sentiment that only the indigenous belong is spilling over into other states. Demands for NRC-like exercise in Arunachal. Already Arunachal has an inner line. If you want to go into, if I want to go to Arunachal, which I hope to go in next two weeks, I need to apply for a permit. As an Indian, I need to apply for a permit to go there, right? And they want to extend that exclusivity to an NRC-like exercise to say who belongs, who is indigenous to Arunachal, right? And this is actually beginning to target the Tibetan refugees who have been settled in India since 1959. And the dynamics here is very interesting because what it's talking about is not pitting citizens, citizens against citizens, but saying if you're not a citizen, you just don't have any right to be here. And what it does is it completely destabilizes India's uh, long-standing policy towards giving rehabilitation and refuge to the Tibetan, Tibetans 
as well as uh, the fact that India has uh, a very large refugee population. So you can't make laws and dispensations only for one or the other. It will spill over into others. And this has become very violent. This has actually become very violent. And, uh, and how many, you know how many, Tibet, there are less than 8,000 Tibetans in Arunachal, which has less than 8,000 people which has a population of over 2.5 millions, 1.25 millions. Because there is the presence of these ready discourses of indigeneity, of these discourses of exclusion, people can plug into it and say, we deserve the same. And the others don't. Right? And these are just a list of the settlements in uh, Arunachal, just to give you a sense of how many people live there. And uh, like I said, this has got violent, and this was earlier this year, where a Tibetan old complex, owned complex in uh, the um, capital city of Arunachal, Itanagar, was burned down because it was, it was actually owned by Tibetans. Right? So very quickly to, to put it all together, territory interacts with notions of indigeneity to produce dominant discourses of citizenship, which are interpreted and reinterpreted over and over again. And then just the final point, which is in this process, in India, you can see co-option of bio-control policies of the colonial masters. So the Indian state is not really a post-colonial state in that sense. And I will stop here. So the question that I want to ask the three of you is based partly on the fact that I used to be involved in aid and development work, right? And there was, there was mention of competitive state making in the region as being partly about accelerated development, right? Competitive accelerated development. Now there's a kind of common sense understanding that development is always a good thing, right? How can it be bad to bring roads to the villages? How can it be bad to give them electricity and so on and so on? Uh, and I'm just wondering if you could sort of help uh, give us a look behind that common sense argument and tell us some of the nefarious working that states do through the good of development and some of the ways that it even maybe doesn't necessarily directly benefit the local people living in the areas, right? So I'm just wondering if you could each speak to that point for a little bit, starting with whoever would like to start. So, uh, the one thing which is very um, visible with regard to infrastructure development is, on the Indian side, uh, there's always a demand for um, better um, access, right? And it has been for a very long time. People have been asking for roads, people have been asking for uh, um, bridges. But the only response that you see on war footing is to move military hardware. Mm. They, build, they build large infrastructure projects to, to move military hardware. Two examples of that uh, that have been recently concluded and inaugurated with great fanfare by the current government are the Dola Sadia Bridge in Arunachal and the Bogiville Bridge in Arunachal. Both. All the journalistic covering you saw of these two were saying they have been hardened to carry India's main battle tank, the Arjun. It can take that much weight. right? And there is this very interesting piece written by a friend 
uh, of mine called Mirza. His name is Mirza, and he wrote uh, recently a piece called Pickled Infra. Oh, our friend, okay. Pickled, pickled infrastructure. Now, pickling in India is actually uh, it, when you find something useless, you say, "What should I do with it? Pickle it, right? Iska achar right?" And he's written, he's written such an evocative piece. It's called Pickled Infrastructure, which is this infrastructure is of no use to the people who actually live there. It's fairly disruptive. I think there's actually a really interesting gendered element to the way that infrastructure works in these mountains, which may be able to speak to Gerald's question. And so every time someone talks about the uses of uh, infrastructure, I have to tell you a very, um, I have a kind of a traumatic, painful reaction um, because I lost a friend uh, who couldn't get to a hospital to give birth because there were no roads. Right. So on the one hand, I have this idea of people being isolated, women giving birth in isolated villages with no help and no hospitals and no and no schools for their kids. Um, and there was a lot of um, people in that village that didn't have the education to help with like basic healthcare because there was no schools there either. Right. So on the one hand, if development means getting women to be able to go to hospital, get means having uh, both boys and girls being able to go to school, because often there's a choice, then development, I would say, was always good, right? Uh, as long as those schools um, included bilingual education, um, right? So, so as long as there was, you know, from the communities up. On the other hand, the way that I see uh, development working is, is, as Sonica said, is bro, it's so cliched that they have these big signs saying, bro is looking out for you. <laughs> bro for structure. I was the, co the coin, the term, I was like, it's bro for structure. It's not infrastructure. It's all about the bros. Um, there's all of these things about big uh, freeways for, you know, I mean, this has been the same the whole time. I've been going to the Himalayas since I was a teenager and hitchhiking around. You got on a military road, it was a good road. Right? It's always been the case. As soon as the military are involved, roads get made and they magically stay open. Um, right? But when, when it's not about the bros, there's no roads, there's no schools and everything. So if it could, if there was, um, someone was trying to tell me I should come up with an acronym that was like anti-bro, that was about sisters for intentional development or something, but I was like, I can't come up with something that came out of sis. Um, but, uh, but we couldn't come up with anything. But if there was a way to shift infrastructure, if there was a way to shift development so that it was focused on communities and women and children, great. Okay. Alex? Yes, no, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I don't think we can sit here and say that these parts of the world shouldn't be connected to, to the rest of the world. Um, but to take it away from, to take infrastructure away from roads, um, the largest single item in India's foreign aid budget is actually a project in, in Bhutan, which is obviously central to the Himalaya, which we haven't talked about yet. And that piece of foreign aid is building an enormous dam in, in Bhutan. Uh, and Bhutan is connected or being connected to India's electricity grid. So framing this as a foreign aid project is kind of a little bit iffy, I suppose <laughs> you might say. But as Ruth has taught me many times over the last few years, building an enormous dam has tremendous environmental consequences, particularly locally, but it does provide electricity to the, to the, to the Indian grid or the Bhutanese grid as well in this case. And so when you, you have to ask the question, who is this development being done for and 
who is it benefiting the most? But we need to remember that this is there's an ambivalence to this, that this is going to benefit local peoples in some way. It can be done in ways that benefit local peoples, like Ruth just touched on. So I tend to focus on the ambivalence of that development. Who's it for? Okay, um, we might draw a line. Please join me in thanking Sondika, Alex, and uh, Ruth for today's talk. And um, thanks also Ewan and Latrobe Asia for hosting us, and thanks to all of you for coming along today. Cheers. <laughs>